kind of segueing from that into uh, really the picture and movement of the church. We've been 17 weeks now studying the book of Acts, and we've looked closely at this movement of church, this community, how it's gone, gone from its very birth, its very sort of first moments, the first gatherings, to now this deeply persecuted, rapidly growing movement of Christ followers. And we've kind of walked these steps, and we found ourselves all the way into Acts chapter 8, And so if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and kind of get there. But let me give you a quick little recap historically of where we are. Because the church has taken quite a a few turns in its little short existence. So over these past 17 weeks or time that we've looked at Acts, these first eight chapters, we've seen the church go from a promise that Jesus himself said, you will gather and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will become my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the very ends of the earth. Giving the promise of the birth of the church, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. The people are empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and they begin to proclaim the gospel in different languages. The church begins to explode and begins to grow, and the apostles begin to teach. And quickly, the apostles become persecuted. The local religious governments don't want anything to do with them. They want them out. They want this community of believers gone. Over the past few weeks, we have seen persecution get escalated. We have seen the apostles imprisoned. We've seen them beaten. We even two weeks ago saw Stephen uh, accused of blasphemy against God and against Moses, hauled out of town, and had rocks thrown upon him and ultimately stoned to death. What we saw in those moments was a young man by the name of Saul who was giving his approval to Stephen's death. And in that moment, a great persecution breaks out, and many of the leaders and churchgoers are gathered together. They are detained, taken to Samaria and Judea, the surrounding countrysides, and they are scattered. And a great persecution breaks out against the church. And last week we met this guy, Stephen, I mean, sorry, Philip, who we'll talk about today again, who was taken to a land in Samaria, and he is left there to preach, essentially, the gospel. And what we've seen is the church has gone from this promise to this empowered movement to now being scattered over that little known area to try and decentralize it, hoping that maybe it will just go away. What we're going to see this morning is we're going to see some things unfold Uh, as a result of this scattering, they're going to call into question some pretty deep and important theological questions. So rather than give you a big recap of where we went last week, I want to remind you that we were introduced to two key people, all right? Two key people. First, we were introduced to Saul of Tarsus. And I told you about Saul, who later would basically go by the name Paul, but they were both his names. He had two names. He didn't have a name change after he met Jesus. He actually had dual names. It was kind of common because he was a Roman citizen and his Roman name was Paul, but he was also a Hebrew and his Hebrew name from his parents was Saul. And because he went to seminary and spent a lot of time studying studying under one of the greatest theological minds of the time, a guy by the name of Gamaliel, he went often by his name Saul. But as his ministry, as his life changed and his ministry begins to take form and he begins to take the gospel to the Gentiles, he kind of exclusively begins to go by his name Paul, which would have resonated more with Roman people, etc., etc. But you can go back and forth and call him Saul or Paul. But he's from this region called Tarsus, which was an incredibly cosmopolitan area. Massive university. In fact, the largest university in the known world at the time was there, bigger than the one in Athens, bigger than the one in Alexandria. Saul was incredibly educated. At 13, he was sent to Jerusalem essentially to go to seminary, where for seven years he studied under this Gamaliel guy. Got what was the equivalent of about two PhDs. And by the time we see him now, he is probably the most educated Jew in all of Jerusalem, all the whole area. And he's a huge deal. And he's an up and coming person, and they're laying kind of all this power 
at his feet, and he is there, the one that is giving approval. And he takes it upon of Stephen's death, and he takes it upon himself to begin to eradicate the Christians. So the last part of that first few verses in chapter 8, we see that, that Saul has decided to go door to door and arrest anyone that claims to be a follower of Christ. We were introduced to him last week. We were also introduced to Philip. Now we met Philip back when we met Stephen. Chapter 7, when there was sort of a little bit of an argument going on in the context of the church, and some people are disgruntled because some of the widows are getting more food than others, and the distribution's not equal. And so, you know, basically the, the apostles stop and they say, we need to appoint more leaders. And so we went through what that process looked like, and two of those guys that were appointed to kind of work in the context of community, right, were, were Stephen, who we met and who was killed, and Philip. Now, Philip has two names in history. He's called Philip the Deacon, oftentimes, because of this ministry of helping distribute food that he was given. Uh, he was given that role, and he has this help in distributing that food to the widows and other people. And so he was given the title Deacon or Servant, right? Philip the Deacon, Philip the Servant. He also has been given the title Philip the Evangelist throughout history, mainly for what we saw last week, which was when he is detained and carried off into Samaria, he does the only thing he knows how to do and what he was told to do by Jesus himself, which is go and preach the gospel. And he begins to preach the gospel, and the people in Samaria begin to believe. And they begin to have this incredible movement of their hearts, and great joy, as we read last week, breaks out in the city. And thus, Philip is oftentimes called Philip the Evangelist because of what he did. Samaria. Now, don't be confused. This is not Philip, the disciple of John the Baptist, who later went on to become the disciple of Jesus. Different guy. But we met those two key, key people last week. And we were also introduced, finally, into this area, a region called Samaria. Now, Samaria, you may remember, is a kind of a, a pretty famous area because all throughout the New Testament, the Jewish people wanted nothing to do with it. They hated the Samaritans. They hated them, and it's a, it's a long kind of Old Testament story, but they really hated them because they were a mixed race. They were a result of uh, Jewish people that were carried off by the Assyrians when the northern kingdom was conquered some centuries and centuries ago. And they kind of broke the law of God and they intermarried with the people in that region and they created a mixed race of people. And the Jewish people who lived in Jerusalem hated that. In fact, they wouldn't even step foot in Samaria. If they were traveling north, they would go 15 miles out of the way, cross the Jordan River, walk around the country, cross back over just so they'd have to put one foot in the stinking dirt. All except Jesus, of course, who just sort of traipsed right through it, had an encounter with the Samaritan people all the time. And we see him tell the apostles that they are going to become witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, which is the sort of surrounding countryside right around him, and then Samaria, right, the place that none of them wanted to go, even to the very ends of the earth. And so we see the church being scattered to Judea and to Samaria, and Philip finds himself in Samaria, and he does what Jesus told him to do. He begins to preach the gospel, and revival breaks out. I mean revival breaks out people begin to encounter the risen Christ, and there's joy and celebrating in the city. And as we looked at last week, in the middle of this great persecution, God's word is being proclaimed. So that's where we're going to pick up. So if you've got your Bible, open up to uh, Acts chapter 8, because we're going to look at a situation that unfolds right in the middle of Philip preaching this gospel to Samaria. So if you've got that Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 8, and uh, I'm guessing verse 9 is where we're going to start. Before we do that, let's take a moment and let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the truth of your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharp with an any double-edged sword. You tell us that it penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God, we believe in an encounter with your word and an encounter with you, and we do not take it lightly. 
So, Lord, I pray that you would teach us, Lord, that you would reveal truth to our hearts, Lord. God, we cannot discover you. You are undiscoverable. You reveal yourself to us. And so, God, we ask through your Holy Spirit you would reveal yourself to us and that we would see you as the object and father of our life. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something this morning. Ask him to teach your heart. someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, just around you, pray that God would move in them. I say this every single week, be in the habit of, habit of praying for other people. This thing we do on Sunday morning is not just about you. Pray for people around you that God would move in their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would teach us through your word, that you would make the difficulties that are in this passage become clear, that you would make the powerful things in this passage become relevant, that God, you would instruct our hearts, convict us when we need convicted, encourage us when we need encouraged, God, we pray that you would move deeply in our hearts, and we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, amen. So this is happening, 8-9 is happening, right as Philip is preaching in Samaria, people are coming to know Jesus. In fact, we look at verse 7 right before that, right before our passage for today, and it says that all kinds of things are happening. Uh, evil spirits are coming out of people, paralytics and cripples are being healed, and there was great joy in the city. Like there is a movement that is happening. This is what happens in verse 9 and where we're going to be today. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city, and he amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone to whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you have thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen. When they testified and proclaimed uh, to the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Interesting encounter of all the stories that are unfolding in Samaria, of all the things that are happening in life change and the great joy and the rejoicing and all this stuff. This is the one that's been chosen to be elevated, this encounter with Simon the magician, Simon the sorcerer. Now, Simon's kind of an interesting guy, and I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a minute, but what we know is that Philip is preaching, and people are coming to know Christ, and this 
guy who was known by people in high places and low places, that he amazed them with his magic, begins to follow Philip around. He sees the miraculous things that are happening. He sees those that are crippled that are walking. He sees the evil spirits that are coming out. He is seeing the power of God, and he begins to follow Philip around. Now, we know that Simon is kind of a big deal and says that he thinks that he is pretty great. And the people around him think that he's great. In fact, they give him the title that he is the one uh, that has the great power, is what it says, right? He is the one that has this sort of great power, that divine power, meaning that somehow he is either God or associated with God is what he thinks about himself or at least what people around him think. And he's following Philip around, and he is astonished by what he's seeing. All of his life he's dealt in sorcery, all of his life he's dealt in magic, if you will, and he sees this power that's happening with Philip, and he is amazed by it. Well, as Philip preaches the gospel, we learn that the people in Samaria, in that great city, the capital city of Samaria, they begin to believe the men and women, they're hearing the gospel, and they're transformed. And in verse 13, we see that Simon himself was amazed and believed, right? Well, when the the disciples in Jerusalem get word that the gospel has actually taken root in Samaria, they send Peter and John. Remember, the Jewish people could not stand the Samaritans. Well, they were as amazed as anybody that the gospel had now taken root there. And so when they hear this, they're like, well, we need to send the apostles there because God is, is absolutely doing something. If the gospel is taking form and changing the lives of the people in Samaria, we need to send Peter and John. And so they go and they begin to lay hands on people. And the Holy Spirit begins to empower and come into their lives. And Philip, I mean, Philip is a part of this. And Simon the sorcerer is even more amazed. He's going, oh my gosh, I have got to be a part of this. And so he pulls out a bunch of money. He says, listen, I'll give you a bunch of money. Get me to do this. Like, teach me how. Show me how. Give me this great power so that when I lay my hands on people, they may receive the Holy Spirit as well. And, of course, Peter reacts and just says, what's wrong with you? Repent. Your heart is broken. In fact, he says that your heart is not right before God. The Greek there actually says your heart is not straight or your heart is crooked. Your heart is broken, right? Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord, and perhaps he will forgive you, right? So Simon says, please pray for me. I don't want any of those bad things to happen to me, right? And it says that they sort of went on and began to preach the gospel throughout all these Samaritan cities. And we're left with this kind of weird interaction of Simon the sorcerer and his desire to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit. And honestly, there's probably about four different ways we could approach this text this morning. There's this sort of historical movement that's there. There's a contextual movement. There's a theological movement. And probably each of them deserve their own message, right? But what I'm going to do is take a little bit of a more narrow focus. And maybe one day later we'll come back to uh, a bigger picture of what's unfolding here. But I'm going to take a little bit narrow focus. Because what continues to strike me about this passage is what is happening in Simon? Like context aside, history aside, all that stuff aside, what is happening in Simon? Because something is going on. Because verse 13, we see that Simon believes and is baptized. We see this movement. But then we get to verse 20, where he has a wicked and crooked heart and broken, and Peter tells him he should repent because his heart is filled with bitterness. And basically what Peter is saying is to hell with you and your money. That Greek sentence basically says, you and your money will perish. That's what Peter's saying. What happens from verse 13 to verse 20? It's a really interesting question. 
So what's going on in Simon? Well, we know a little bit about Simon from these few verses in the New Testament. We know a little bit more about him from history. There's a lot of historical writings that refer to Simon. Justin Martyr, who was one of the sort of early historians, was uh, martyred in Rome, wrote uh, about a century later about Simon. He said that he was such a big deal that when he went to Rome, he was worshipped as a god, and they even built this giant statue to Simon of Samaria, right? Uh, Irenaeus, which is another early church father and historian, wrote that he was the sort of chief heretic of the church, the father of Gnosticism, that he was the kind of the the symbol um, of all that was heretical in the first few centuries of the early church. We have a lot of writings that point to Simon as being this sort of kind of awful movement, if you will, of, of, of heretical theology um, in the early church. So we begin to ask ourselves that question, like, what is happening in him? Like, how do we get a verse 13 that says he believed and was baptized and get to verse 20 and find out that Simon's on his way literally to be destroyed, to hell? And it begs a really important question, a really important question. The question is this, did Simon have an authentic encounter with Christ and then fall away? And the reason that question's really important is because it actually begs a bigger question, which is, can we have an authentic encounter, a saving encounter with Jesus Christ and lose our salvation? And it's a really important theological question, all right? And that's why I want to look at this sort of narrow focus this way. Because a lot of things in our lives hinge on the answer to this question. Can I have an authentic, life-saving encounter with Jesus Christ and lose my salvation and fall away? Right? It's a really important question because a lot of people have speculated that in verse 13, Simon has this encounter where he believes and is baptized. Then he quickly falls into sin, this radical movement into sin, and loses or has his salvation revoked. So I want to get into it by talking a little bit about what Simon believes, the object of his belief and the result of his belief and this idea of baptism. But I want to give you the answer first because if you fall asleep, zone out, whatever happens, I want you to hear the answer, all right? Okay, so here's the answer. The answer is an emphatic no. You cannot have an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ, a life-saving, redeemed encounter with Christ by which the Holy Spirit of God purchases you out of slavery, sets you free, and then fall away from that. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but I'm going to give you a couple of them just so you can hang on to them, and then I'm going to move you through the idea. But the essential truth is this. If you cannot earn your salvation, you cannot lose your salvation. By believing that by your sin or your actions that you can lose your salvation, you are essentially making two huge theological mistakes. The one is that salvation is by grace. By my effort, it is somehow earnable and then therefore somehow losable. So that my eternal security hangs on my ability to not mess up too badly. I can mess up certain ways, but not these grave ways, right? It is hinging on my effort as if I earn it and then I can lose it, all right? The second huge mistake we make is saying that it says that Christ's death on the cross is somehow not completely sufficient for my salvation, meaning meaning that there is a measure in which, right, a measure in which Christ's death on the cross and resurrection was sufficient to save me, but not keep me saved. You see the move there? So the idea is simply this. If we have an authentic, 
life-saving encounter with Jesus Christ by which the Holy Spirit of God purchases us, exchanges us, takes our death and sin, sets us free and gives us new life. We have been made completely new, the Bible tells us. We have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We have been made a new creation, right? When that thing happens, that is something that we cannot lose. It has been exchanged. So then what is happening here? And that's what we're going to get into this morning because this is fascinating. What happens with this idea of Simon believed and was baptized? So in order to really understand that, we have to understand or at least look at this idea of belief. What is it that Simon really believed? So what is the object of his belief? Because we know he believed in something. I mean, even our text here tells us, right? It tells us that Simon believed. But what is it that he believed? Well, if we look at our text closely, There's a whole bunch of uh, kind of hints. But the most important one jumps out right as as we learn that verse, right before we learn that verse in 13, where it says that he was a man of great power, this divine power. People followed around, he was amazed. But when they believed, right, Philip preached the good news. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So what was it that captured Simon's heart? Was it the God of the universe, the resurrected Christ, this life-saving grace that was poured out on him? What we see in verse 13 and 14 was Simon was astonished by the miracles and wonders that Philip did. He followed Philip around after having been believed and baptized and was absolutely amazed by what Philip did. He was astonished by it. The object of Simon's faith, right, was not who Philip was pointing to, but in Philip's miraculous movements himself. The best way that I can explain this, and those of you that have nieces or nephews or little kids will know, if you've ever sat around, whether it was in the car, at your house or whatever, and seen something really cool outside, like a bird landed on the window or whatever, and you look at your two-year-old and you say, look, look, a bird, and you point to it, or look at that thing, and you point to it, and your two-year-old is fixated on your finger, Right? And you're going like this, and their head's going, you're under the bird, and they will not look out the window because they're watching this really cool thing right here that's associated with your hand. And so, and then by the time it's gone and they finally look at the window, the thing is gone. I've had, we've all had those moments where you kind of get the idea of what I'm talking about. Like, I'm pointing to something so much cooler, but you are watching my hand. This is not what's cool. That thing, bird, cool, idea, biker, whatever, that is, look at that, plane. Look at the plane. Look at the plane, and they're following your finger around in the sky. This is essentially what's happening. It's the best way to explain it. Philip's entire preaching and movement and miraculous signs were meant to point to Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of mankind. And what Simon is fixated on is the pointing finger. He's fixated on the miracle moment, not the miracle maker. He is saying, I am amazed and astonished. And and, and our author makes this point when he uses this idea of amazed multiple times. Because we learn that Simon amazed the people. They were amazed by the movements of magic he did, right? And then we learn right there in verse 13 and 14 that in the same way that Simon did the amazing, he was amazed himself by what it is that Philip did. See, the object of Simon's faith was the amazement. It was the astonishment. It was that thing is so cool. I believe in that. And he was amazed by it in the same way that he amazed people. 
What we don't see is Simon having this sort of deep belief in what it was that Philip's preaching and his miracles were pointing to, right? The object of Simon's faith was this pointing finger. Well, look at this, and he was missing the entire point. We see that sort of echoed in the result of his belief. So what is it that, that his belief results in, right? So if we jump to verse 20, Peter figures it out pretty quickly. So the result of this belief and baptism has led Simon to one place. And look at verse 20. When Peter shows up on the scene and Simon says, listen, uh, I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to lay my hands on people so that when I touch them, right, they will receive the Holy Spirit. I want to be able to do this so that when I touch people, they are healed. And Peter picks up on it pretty quickly and says, may your money perish with you, right? That you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part of this ministry because your heart is not right before God. You see, the result of Simon's belief or his faith was really something that he could earn for himself. Like, I want to believe in this thing that Philip keeps talking about because I want to have these amazing, incredible experiences and powers. I believe because I want that. And so when Peter shows up and he lays hands on these new believers and they receive the Holy Spirit, Simon says, give it to me. I want to be able to do that amazing thing. See, the result, the outcome of Simon's belief was something that he could gain for himself. Do you know what the result of true, authentic encounter or belief in Christ is? It is always brokenness and repentance. Read the Bible. Everybody that has an authentic encounter with Christ, they are led to brokenness and repentance. In fact, Peter's first encounter with Jesus, when Jesus calls him as a fisherman, they get out on the boat, right? He says, throw the nets over. And Peter says, I'm not throwing the nets over. I've been fishing all night. And Jesus says, look, just trust me, throw the nets over. They throw the nets over and they begin to reel them in and they are so full of fish they begin to break. You know what Peter's response is? He throws himself at Jesus' feet, right? Remember, this is his first encounter with Christ. Throws himself at Jesus' feet and he says, Lord, get away from me for I am a sinful man. This is his first encounter with Christ. And you know where it led him? To brokenness. He recognized that he was standing in the presence of God and it led him to fall on his face in brokenness and repentance. The result of true, authentic belief and faith in Christ is brokenness and repentance. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2 that when we truly experience God's goodness, his patience, his kindness, it leads us to repentance. Simon's faith was missing that part that said, I am broken and you are God and I am sinful and I need you. See, Simon's, somebody's a murderer down there. I heard that one. Simon's faith, the object of his faith, right, was the desire to see or partake in the miracle and not know the miracle maker, right? And the result of his faith was that somehow I might gain from this to further myself, not repentance and brokenness. You want to know the most, one of the most petrifying verses in all of scripture comes out of Matthew chapter seven. Jesus himself says it. It is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Right, he's got this huge crowd of people gathered around him. And he looks at them all and he says, listen, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. But you will look at me in that day and you will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And he says, I will look at them and I will say, away from me, you evildoers, 
because I never knew you. See, there is a difference in knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. True, authentic belief leads us to a place of brokenness and repentance, that God is holy and mighty and we are sinful and broken. And Simon's faith was not in that. It was in what he could gain for himself so that he might have the power. So then what do we do with this baptism? Because this is kind of interesting. Simon not only believed, but he was baptized. And some have said, because he was baptized, doesn't that mean that Simon himself was saved? And I'll tell you, I mean, I've read a lot, and I've read a lot for this stuff and reading all that baptism. And churches, of course, as you know, and entire denominations believe all kinds of different things about baptism. And I'm not downplaying baptism, so don't hear that, all right? But a lot of people believe that baptism means a bunch of things, but it means at that very moment in time is the day that I become a true believer. That at that very moment in time is the one where I become a, a part of the kingdom of God. Some denominations even believe that if I have my children baptized, that means they are officially saved, no matter what happens from that point forward. The reality is if you read scripture, none of these things are true. Now, baptism is incredibly important because Jesus himself tells us to do it is that it is one of the things that is commanded by him. But baptism is the outward expression of what is taking place in our heart. It is the visible sermon of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has transformed our life. It is a result of the expression of what has taken place. It is not the means by which we are saved, but the expression that we have been. It is our appeal to God to say, God, what you have done in me, I proclaim outwardly to the watching world as a demonstration of what you have done in my heart. Simon the sorcerer is an example that you can be baptized and still not have a saving belief in Jesus Christ. Now here's the scary part of all this, and not scary in terms of frightening, but just the reality of all of this, is that our churches are filled with people that show up on Sundays faithfully because they should and have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ preached have never surrendered their heart to the saving grace in Jesus Christ, but are hoping by some means, if they just keep coming, God may forgive or overlook a few of the things that they've done wrong, and that somehow it'll lead to a better moral life that in turn will lead them to a little bit more happiness. And our churches are filled with people who think that's the gospel, who may have been baptized, who may have even say they were born a Christian. But we learn from Simon the sorcerer is that it is all too possible, all too possible to claim to be a believer, even have all these sort of outward things that go along with that. All the words that you know, know all the songs, wear all the right t-shirts, whatever it is, and never truly know Christ. And the evidence of that is Jesus himself words in Matthew 7. There's a difference in knowing Jesus and knowing about him. True belief leads us to deep brokenness and repentance. So here's the thing, and, and I kind of want to end with this little thought, because it's all too easy to look at Simon and be like, dude, what a loser. Like, I can't believe that's what we see here. But think about it for a moment. I, I mean, I'll say it out loud. I'm really not all that different from Simon, right? And think about the way our, our church culture is kind of moved, right? Think about that example of the, the toddler and the bird for a moment. Our churches are filled, right, with things that we are enamored with, things that are supposed to be pointing us 
to the risen Christ. We are enamored with celebrity pastors and worship leaders and bloggers. We are enamored with facilities and spaces and coffee bars and light shows and stuff and things and singles ministries and this and this. And we are enamored with those things and we are amazed by those things. And if he or she wrote it, then we buy it and we believe it. And if they're going to show up, we show up in the droves to go and see that person, that thing, that idea. And we so often exchange the pointer for what's being pointed to. And we hold on to their words as if they are some kind of great divine power like Simon is to the people in Samaria. Because they've said a bunch of things that seem to resonate with our hearts. And they say it in a really great way. And they tell an amazing story. And they point to amazing things. And we want faith like that. We want to know that. They tell us that if we just do our best, we can have the best life now. And it makes us feel a little bit better about the disaster that we're in. And we are enamored with the pointer. And not what's being pointed to. Because what's being pointed to is painful. And it's gut-wrenching. And it leads to brokenness. And I just as soon high-five the great celebrity teacher and have to deal with the God that called me sinful. And the reality of the gospel is brokenness leads us to repentance. And repentance leads us to the heartbeat of God. I'm so much like Simon. I'm enamored with things that point. And I look at them and I stare at them. I say, that's awesome. That's amazing. You're incredible. I want a piece of that. I wish I could be like that. I wish I could believe that. I wish I prayed like that, had a faith like that, could do those things. And I believe the God of the universe is saying, it's about me. Like, know me. As a church, right, as a small community, may we never become enamored with the things that point. Always with what they're pointing to. Because let's be honest, we're not really all that different, is it? Let's pray. God, we thank you for... Uh,